0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Uh, this afternoon, it is October 2nd of 2014, and our guest is Sean Shelley, who is uh, in charge of the addictions program at Hope House Counseling Center in Cape Town, South Africa. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, a Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest, Sean, is with us right now. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Kenneth, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, Tell me a little bit, how did you get interested in doing addictions counseling?
1: Well, um, like a lot of people, I had my own experience with um, addictive disorders, and, uh, you know, when I found some level of recovery from that, uh, I thought that this was a great thing to get into, as many people do, probably for the wrong motivations, you know, I felt I had all the answers. Um, and a friend of mine gave me some really good advice when he said, uh, don't think that you know anything. Uh, you know your, your personal experience probably is going to cause you more problems than any good if you want to actually get involved in this. Uh, you need to go out and study. And, and I started studying. And uh, I, I find the field fascinating because it, it covers so many aspects of humanity and life. Um, and and it, it's kept me interested. You know, I, I find it a fascinating field.
0: Well, I found that uh, uh, you're cutting out there. Um, I've, I've been following your newsletters and a lot of things, and you've spoken a lot about harm reduction, and I was really interested in that. So uh, tell us, how is harm reduction received in, in South Africa?
1: Okay, well, harm reduction in South Africa is not received well at all. Um, in fact, there are very few harm reduction programs. Um, You know, when I go around and and speak about what I think is common sense, I I get people saying, wow, you're the first person telling us this. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago at um, a a national uh, meeting on on drugs and uh, substance use, uh, uh, there was an organization called Doctors for Life who stood up and said that you actually, cannot use the term harm reduction. This is uh, encouraging people to use drugs. Um, you cannot use it at all. And they have so much influence in South Africa that our National Drug Master Plan was actually influenced. And, and the National Drug Master Plan that exists in South Africa uses the term a South African version of harm reduction. And they have a working committee trying to define what harm reduction is, which is absolutely crazy. I mean, you can find the definition of harm reduction on any... Uh, World, Ho- World, World Health Organization website, you know any UNODC website, you can find a working definition of harm reduction. So harm reduction in South Africa is is very much frowned upon. It's we have no state funded um, maintenance programs for you know opioid maintenance programs uh, whatsoever. The only thing that is funded in a very small way is very short term, 14 day detox, seven 7- to 14 day detox. That's it. Um, so, you know, it's an uphill battle in South Africa. Uh, we don't really have much harm reduction at all.
0: So if someone wants to go on maintenance, for example, methadone or buprenorphine, I mean, do they have to pay out of their own pocket? Can they do it?
1: They have to pay out of their own pocket. In fact, I'm involved in a, in a project outside the house environment where we're doing a demonstration project to show that uh, this can be uh, delivered effectively using existing infrastructure in the South African context. Um, so we looking at doing that at the moment. Uh, there is only one other program that I'm aware of in South Africa, which is being run on a trial basis. Um, and they have a total of 42 people currently on opioid maintenance therapies. Uh, we hope to have about 120 people in this demonstration project, but that's it. You know, otherwise, you've got to pay for it out of your own pocket.
0: How about needle exchange? Is the, are there needle exchanges there?
1: Nope. Uh, in fact, once again, the project that I'm, that I'm working on, we will be offering one of the first needle exchanges. Um, There is a a needle exchange project that was running. It stops in October, but that was targeted specifically for uh, the MSM, the men having sex with men population. Um, And that was the only uh, needle exchange program in in the Cape Town area that I'm aware of. Um, And as for the rest of the country, there might be isolated uh, pockets where some level of needle exchange is taking place, but certainly it's not common. It's pretty much frowned upon, um, and it's not seen as as part of the necessary services.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I know that you, uh, you're you very interested in harm reduction and counseling. And at uh, Hope House, uh, do, is, is this well received by the rest of the staff? Um, how's it going with that?
1: Well, Hope House, we, we're quite different in that what what we do is we want to encourage people to come into uh, some sort of interaction or engagement, um, early on in their, in substance-using careers. So we, we do not have an abstinence-based model. And as far as I know, we are the only treatment program in Cape Town which does, doesn't have an abstinence-based approach. Um, what that means is, is we deliver a basket of services, um, that range from harm reduction um, right through the continuum to uh, sort of some abstinence-based services for people who want that. So I firmly believe that people uh, should have a choice when it comes to to what approach they want to try. Um, and I believe that we need to have uh, sort of compartmentalised uh, um, service offerings that are under the same umbrella, uh, but they they know in, in and of their own uh, individual. Um, modalities of treatment or interventions uh, that suit the, the individual at their particular uh, point of need. So it was a bit of a battle at first because obviously there weren't a lot of people that were familiar with this. But certainly my staff are are, are very um, uh, open to the idea now. Um, when I say my staff, I must say this is a team that I work with. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just. Uh, uh, sort of employee of Hope House although I head up their addiction program so I don't want to give the impression that I head up Hope House that's not the case I I head up the program development of the addiction side and I started the addiction program um, there but I I also encourage uh, people working in the environment to have different views and to bring their views to the table but most of them have seen harm reduction work they've seen a continuum uh, kind of approach to treatment work. They've seen people exit the treatment environment and then come back to it at a later stage, and so I think the proof of the pudding is ready in the eating. People have seen that it works, and so they embrace it. And, and I've, got, I've got some people who who have been very firmly um, entrenched in 12-step philosophies. who have come along and said, you know, this actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and, and we're seeing results from this. And so I encourage people to have an open mind, um, and, and I think that's reciprocated by them feeling safe to say, well, maybe everything I've learned is not necessarily 100% true, which is the path I went on. You know, I, I, I was taught the traditional kind of, oh, this is a primary chronic disease of the brain, and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. But when I started looking at the data, I didn't find the data to support that. And when I started listening to people's stories, you know the, the, the way those stories were being interpreted to me didn't make much sense. And uh, and and so I, I just encourage people to look at the data and to and to look at what's actually happening. And I think they most people are intelligent enough to make up their own minds once they've been given the space to make those decisions. So you know. the people who I work with at Hope House are fantastic, you know, and they um, they embrace these what what might be new ideas to them, and uh, and and I think we've got a successful team there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, just uh, out of curiosity, what are some of the other services besides addiction treatment services that you offer at Hope House? Okay,
1: Hope House, as a, a wider environment, um, was started about eight years ago. And they offer a, a lot of counseling interventions because we have a lot of communities here that don't have any sort of access to counseling. They don't have, um, you know, funded medical services at all. So they don't have access to psychologists uh, uh, or even just general lay counselors. So Hope House started off providing counseling services um, uh, across quite a wide range of areas, you know, so from children who've been victims of sexual abuse, uh, to marriage counseling, to uh, people who've been in abusive relationships, that kind of thing. And then uh, a couple, of about two and a half years ago, um, they asked me to start the, the addiction side of it. Um, so on the addiction side, which I can, I can speak more clearly about, we offer um, services to adults Um, It's a walk-in service, very low barriers to entry. Uh, There's no cost involved in it whatsoever. Um, And then we also offer services to adolescents in schools. So we provide services to about 300 adolescents in a variety of schools within our area. Um, Within our schools, we've got a, a particularly large proportion of the population use cannabis um, once again, we get a lot of criticism because we don't necessarily focus on the cannabis use. We say, "What's going on in your life? you know um, let's deal with that. The, the cannabis use is incidental, and what really what we're trying to do is we're trying to prevent the migration from um, from
0: cannabis
1: use. To methamphetamine use. We've got a, a large proportion of, of our local populations uh, are use methamphetamine. Um, heroin hasn't been particularly a, a big problem in most of these communities, but certainly we've seen a lot more heroin use um, now within the communities, uh, but majority have been methamphetamine users. And so with the adolescent population, what we try and stop is, is the migration to methamphetamine, but through problem-solving techniques and helping them improve family relationships, um, helping them make conscious decisions around drug use. You know, we personally, I've got no feeling towards drugs. I don't have any animosity towards it. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's bad. It is what it is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and people should be empowered to make their own choices rather than being told. What they should be doing or not be doing, in my opinion, and that's the approach I've taken, and, and, I, and I think it works.
0: Mm-hmm. Are your services uh, fully integrated? Do you offer know, services to everyone, black and white, you know, rich and poor? Yeah, we we, as I
1: say, we try and keep our barriers to entry as low as possible. Um, so so we take pretty much anyone. Uh, if they've got if they've got a psychiatric disorder, we take them in and try and refer them to services where we can as well. Um, we, uh, you know, that can be quite problematic when somebody is uh, obviously uh, psychotic and untreated. But we try and uh, case manage those kind of uh, problems, you know, for the individual. Um, we we take people of all races. Um, we try and link people up with services that are, are in their particular area because obviously that that uh, that is more helpful. It means that people can better access services. Transport is not always the easiest situation in in Cape Town. Um, we we for people who are committed to to coming to us, we try and subsidise their transport fees on public transport if possible. Uh, so we try and and see everybody. Um, you know, it doesn't matter. Where you come from, you know, or where you where you go, we will try and see. We don't discriminate against anybody in any way whatsoever.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, and you're seeing a lot of success with the with these programs. Yeah, uh,
1: we do have. Uh, I'm I'm actually busy planning some uh, formalised studies which can be peer reviewed over the next couple of years. Um, my my aim is to develop what I refer to as a, as a cumulative continuum-based program of treatment where we can embrace harm reduction principles and abstinence-based principles in the same treatment setting along a continuum um, where people can come in and right from the outset if they're just doing an initial assessment they can uh, get a brief intervention at that stage which sometimes is sufficient for people to change their lives quite dramatically um, but then if they want to they can they can just get in a harm reduction component uh, learn how to use more safely, less dangerously so that they can survive their, their substance using career for lack of a better word uh, um, and I want that con- to continue until they've reached their goals and then try and help people reintegrate into society again. You know, uh, In the South African context, we've got very high uh, rates of unemployment. Obviously, if people have been criminalized and they've got uh, criminal records because they've been uh, arrested for having you know, a small amount of cannabis on them. Uh, you know, It becomes more difficult. So we want to try and help facilitate Uh, integration back into society and but we have a number of problems within the south african context which which you perhaps don't have in the american context you know high unemployment the legacy of apartheid in south africa very highly um dislocated communities which have been relocated forcefully by law within within a generation you know so so those are problems that we have to deal with and i often feel that 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 you know Politically, we're seeing the demonization of drugs, we're seeing people focus on the drugs, but actually it's our communities that need to be focused on. And I I think that translates not only at community level, but also at individual level. Um, If people stop worrying about my drug use and actually start worrying about what makes my life easier... (laughs)
0: <laughs> we lost
1: connection.
0: Yeah, we did. Um, okay. Where were we? Uh, well, I guess we're still recording, so we can continue to go on. Um, so you were talking about uh, the uh, difficulties with the communities um, and some of the things that, uh, that uh, are in the South Africa that we don't have in uh, the United States, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so, and, and I think I think that that this you know in the South African context, we've got these problems. We also have um, you know uh, the the sort of uh, lack of political will to address problems at at, at the ground level. You know, so so all of this focus is on you know those, the sole measures of successful outcome for treatment programs are abstinence. You know, how many how many. Uh, to use a word which I don't like using clean drug tests are so you produce it and, and my argument is is, um, is that that's a pointless exercise? It's an absolutely pointless exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I use the the example of if I if I've got a guy who's been uh, dangerously injecting heroin and and sharing needles and has multiple uh you know episodes of unprotected sex um that that is a danger to him and to other people and if i can uh, help facilitate him making conscious decisions so he's maybe only smoking heroin now and uh and taking better care of himself health wise to me that's a win it's a significant win Mm -hmm.
0: you know i know
1: that that if we engage with that individual if we start Helping him resolve some of the other issues in his life. Eventually, he might decide to stop using heroin, um, but that's his choice. But if he's dead, you know that option isn't available to him anymore. And 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 so, I think that uh, that we have to be able to bring this this harm reduction concept into the larger continuum. And I don't see harm reduction and abstinence as being mutually exclusive, polar opposites. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my aim, you know, to try and to try and get these into the same context. And I know I'm not alone in that. You know, the, the other guys doing that, you know, um, Andrew Tasker and Scott Kellogg and you know, those guys are also, you know, have the same aims of.
0: Yeah, you know, harm reduction has always really been inclusive of abstinence as one possible goal. I mean, harm reduction has offered many possible goals, you know, what people can be safer, they can use less, they can decide to quit, and harm reduction will support anything. It's been uh, much more from the other side, the abstinence-only people say, we have the right answer, we have the only true way, and anything else is inadequate, you know?
1: Yeah, and, and of course, a lot of that is based on false premises. You know, it's based on the on on, on the assumption that that uh, everybody who uh, who has the so-called symptoms of a substance use disorder falls into the into the, the sort of extreme end of the bell curve. You know, they're the worst ten percent. You know, mm-hmm. and and you know, if, if we if we only looked at the number of people who died. From influenza, or who were hospitalised for influenza, we would we would we would look at flu as a totally different thing, you know. And that's what's happened in the addiction field. We've only looked at a very small portion of of the population, and we've assumed that everybody looks like that, and so we treat everybody the same. You know, I I, I listened to a guy the other day who um, who was talking about how many years he's been in recovery and all the rest, and You know, when I listened to his story, it sounded like, you know, he just drank a little bit too much when he happened to be at university, you know, no more than anybody else. But Mm -hmm. there's this pathology that's built up around it that, oh, you know, because I met the criteria for 20 minutes once in my life, you know, um, for the rest of my life, I have to be labeled. uh, and and, and, And this is carried across into not only into individual lives, but also into the whole treatment mode. And I think that we're doing a lot of harm to people um, through that. You know, uh, I was having a discussion with a guy yesterday who runs a mentoring program. And interestingly enough, in that mentoring program, they don't talk about drugs at all. They talk about life problems, and they find naturally people stop using the drugs. There was an interesting study done in our local context here by by Dr. Catherine Sorsdale. She um, she engaged people. Who'd been admitted into emergency rooms and and uh, who'd been using uh, some form of substance and and they they did a brief intervention with with, with the one group um, and with the other group they did uh, four sessions of problem solving therapy in a form of cognitive behavioral therapy they didn't talk about drugs specifically or alcohol use but the majority of those people just doing problem solving therapy therapy, reduce their level of alcohol and drug use, you know, and, and, and that makes sense to me. You know, it's, it's drug use and alcohol use, when it becomes problematic, is usually serving a purpose for that individual. And when we help people try and resolve those issues that are causing conflict within their life, you know, the, the, the drug use and alcohol use often comes back into a, into a more uh, manageable uh, level.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting research that's being done these days. And uh, one example, um, you know, they did a survey uh, between uh, drugfree.org and Oasis, the New York State Office on Substance Abuse, um, and they found an estimate of there's 23.5 million Americans that uh, overcame an addiction problem, a drug or alcohol problem. But, you know, only about 1.5 million of those, you know, did any formal treatment or AA or anything. So it's like, you know, 22 million, almost over 90%, you know, they did it with natural recovery.
1: Yep. Yeah, I've read that research. And, and also, um, you know, if we look at the large population studies, we find that the majority of people, uh, for lack of a better word, mature out or overcome the issues, you know? And, and I think, I think this data is essential. You know, we need to look at what, what, what enables people to mature out, and why is this actually the norm? Um, and then we can sort of get to the answers because because if people aren't maturing out, if they they have longer using careers, there's probably something confounding it. You know, there's there might be uh, socioeconomic issues, there might be um, uh, you know co-occurring disorders, uh, and, and and these are the, the the real confounders that are keeping people trapped in less than helpful substance use or drug use. And and maybe we should look at those rather than 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 labeling the drug as the sole problem. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, when we start talking to people who actually changed on their own, we kind of see a lot of commonalities. They say, you know, I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't like that. I made a decision... To change because that behavior didn't fit me anymore, and you can say, well, was it hard to change? And a lot of people say, yeah, it was a son of a bitch, but I put out an effort and I made the change because I wanted to, because it was worth it. Absolutely. And,
1: and you know, I think I think that a number of people make that point. Obviously, Stanton Peel makes that point quite a lot. Mark Lewis, in his book, Memos of Indicted Brain, uh, he makes that point. He's got a new book coming out next year. I think Carl Hart makes the point as well. Uh, you know, Anne Fletcher makes the point. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there who who are looking at the data and and are saying and and are listening to people and are saying, listen, there are a lot of commonalities here, and it's and it's people finding new relationships, uh, people finding new meaning in life, people finding that actually this substance or drug use is actually not serving any purpose anymore. And I think that often we prolong the 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 using careers of many individuals by alienating mm. them by by making recovery really difficult for them. And mm. I think that that a lot of our treatment programs actually do that. you know you're setting a person up for failure all the time. You know, people make an improvement and then they have a little slip, and you know uh, you know Malak spoke about abstinence violation effect. You know, and I think that those are real concerns about the treatment industry.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my personal experience was, you know, being told that I was, I had a disease, I was powerless, I couldn't control anything, that alcohol was powerful, you know, that whole message uh, set me up to get much worse because, you know, it told me that I could not control my behavior, I could not make a decision to change. And, you know, after hearing that message, I, I got really bad for a while and then I decided to reject that message. I said, that's really stupid. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is an inanimate object. I'm a human being. I'm certainly a lot more powerful than an inanimate object, yeah. and of course, that's when I started getting better.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. You know, um, I, I think that that to tell people that they that they are powerless over whatever it is is a ridiculous concept. I, I just I can't buy into that concept. Um, and you know, I I do think that that that, uh, addictive disorders are, are more learning disorders. I don't see them as a totally separate entity by themselves. You know, I, I can't see how this is, uh, something that that is a disease state in and of itself. It might be difficult to recover from, but it's, you know, it's difficult to recover from lots of things. You know, if we, if we learn coping mechanisms that are inappropriate or we form strong relationships that are not particularly helpful, It's difficult to break those habits and those relationships. I I don't want to minimize people who've come through recovery. Uh, We know it's hard, it's it's, it's not something easy to do, but it can be done. And if we build up this this, uh, sort of mystery around this recovery process and we tell people, oh, you know, you're sick for the rest of your life and your brain has been irreparably changed, I I, I think we've been very defeatist and I think we're actually hindering people's
0: progress. You know, I like to use the example, the analogy of it's like exercise or it's like weightlifting. You know, maybe at first you can only lift fifty pounds, but you keep uh, going at it. Soon you're up to sixty. You keep going. Maybe you're up to two hundred and fifty. You know, three hundred pounds you can lift. But you know, it's it's a building up your muscles to you know change your substance use uh, to abstain or to control it. It's a matter of you, know, you, you build up your muscles. You build up your power.
1: Absolutely. I, and I, I think there's some research that actually supports that. Um, I can't remember exactly which research it was, but there, 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 there was some stuff that, that, that showed that, um, you know, in early, in early recovery there might be a few lapses, but as you move towards the three-year mark, that recovery strengthens. And, and to me, it's like walking a path through a field. You know, imagine you've got a weak field um, and, and you walk through it and you want to go from point A to point B. And, and you've walked this path for many, many years. It hasn't quite got you where you've wanted to go. But this is the, the standard path you've walked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, when you try and walk a new path, it's very easy to deviate back to the old path. So any, any form of stress, any form of uh, uh, barrier, you kind of deviate to the new path. But m- the more you keep walking um, on that path, the more you keep going, uh, you will you will walk a new path until you eventually find the correct outcome. And that becomes strengthened and it becomes more and more difficult then to fall back into the old path. So, yes, it's about persistence. It's about keeping trying. You know, I always use this. Example with the guys that I deal with, I say, you know, you get a, you get from on a train at station A, and you want to go to station Z. When you travel along, and, and maybe at, at station C, you get off the train. You don't go back to A again. You get on the train again, and you keep going when you're ready to get on the train again. And and I think that that that's a message we need to carry forward. That that this. Uh, You know, to to get out uh, from under the the weight of an addictive disorder is not an easy process, but it's a process that you go through. And and if you're told, oh, one sip and, you know, you've got to go back to to point one again, I I just think that's rubbish. You know, I don't see the data for that.
0: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know when Prochaska was studying cigarette smoking, that's one of the things he saw was kind of this exponential curve. The longer that you were abstinent from cigarettes, the less likely you were to relapse. Absolutely, yeah, and and and, and I think that's true, and
1: uh, with it with any uh, substance use disorder as well, uh, I think that that's true, and and like. We learn to use substances. We can learn not to use substances. But I don't think this is the domain of addiction. You know, I I think it's the domain of, of, of being human. You know, we, we get all these pictures of brain changes and all the rest, and, and we, we confound the issue by by uh, ascribing the toxic effects of the drug on addiction, which is not, it's you know, those are two separate entities. Um and and, and we see this addiction thing as something which is almost alien, you know, it's it, it's something that that oh, you know, this special group of people have and, and that's absolute rubbish. You know, it's part of the human condition. To build relationships is very much part of the human condition. And and I like that definition of addiction where, you know, it's a, it's a relationship at the expense of more beneficial relationships. And that, for me, kind of explains it. You know? and, and when we see it like that, and we can realize that we can choose to change those relationships, um, although it might be uncomfortable, I think that, that we, we help people better. And we've mm-hmm. got to keep them alive through harm reduction initiatives until they're ready to make those changes. mm
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, we can really learn a lot from neuroscience and from brain scans and things, and of course uh, Mark Lewis is a neuroscientist who has written really good stuff about this but you know unfortunately in the United States we have NIDA the National Institute on Drug Abuse that has to carry out the government's agenda of scaring people that drugs are bad and you know they kind of use all these brain scans and neuroscience for propaganda instead of for science and they really confuse the issue rather than clarify it
1: yeah and and of course they 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 don't they don't ever publish the negative findings either mm
0: -hmm. which is a problem
1: um and and there was a study that i was looking at the other day you know on uh gray matter density you know and uh in actual fact they were they were finding exactly the opposite of what has so often been reported but they're not considering publishing it because it's a negative finding you know i'm going that's crazy we need to publish these negative findings as well so we can see what the picture actually is um and and uh yeah you know look, if anything's politicized it it is, it is the field of, of, of substance use disorders, you know, it's it, it highly politicized and people have agendas that they want to push. And, uh, uh, and then until we can actually see the data for what the data is, um, I think that we're, we're going to continue having these problems.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I'm going to start bringing the show to a close. So I'm going to ask, what do you want to leave us with today?
1: Um, I, think, I think the main point that I want to make is, is, that, is that we need to see um, addictive disorders for what they actually are. And in the majority of cases, they are something that people will mature out of. Um, we need to lower the barriers of entry and we need to start, start looking at, at uh, a continuum of care that engages people along their using careers, that encourages them to find alternatives and make conscious decisions around substance use and as long as we 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 are demonizing drugs and as long as we are uh, criminalizing people for possession or for using drugs we're not going to achieve those goals in the end
0: okay i want to thank you very much for being our guest today sean shelley and everyone we will see you all again with another show next week